Glad that you are with us as well. And we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Colossians. So if you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And I think what we will find in the Word of God today, in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, is this assertion, that by the grace of God and because of His good pleasure, you and I are called to live in victory. And it is not a victory that we have achieved. It is not a victory that we have accomplished. It has been accomplished by the strength and power of Jesus Christ, that we are meant to live in a state where we recognize and we realize that through Christ, we are forgiven. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Would you pray with me as we go to the Word of God this morning? Heavenly Father, we have come to your Scripture, to your Word, to hear your truth. And we praise you for the victory we have in Jesus Christ. A forgiveness we never could have achieved reconciliation that is ours because one has died in our place because a substitute has stood where we deserve to stand and has taken our punishment and so we have his freedom and so we have his standing with you God I pray that we will see the victory that you offer us this morning and I pray God that we will be so thankful knowing it is a victory we never could have achieved but it is a victory that is ours nonetheless, not because of us, but because of Jesus. I pray we're so grateful for that. 
that we live a life of victory, knowing we are forgiven, a life that glorifies not ourselves, but glorifies you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there is something that jumps out of our text this morning, an application that comes quick, and it is this. We need to claim the gift of forgiveness. You need to claim the gift of forgiveness. Look with me again in verse 13. In verse 13, this is what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Are you forgetful? Do you ever forget things in your life? Do you ever forget stuff? I do. I have a special, remarkable talent. I can lose my keys. I can lose my wallet. The other day, I was searching for my sunglasses, and then I looked in the mirror and realized they were on my head. I am a great loser. I can lose things, and I'm just really good at it. But I am not the only one who is forgetful. I was reading a story one time, and it stated this. Currently, states, federal agencies, and other organizations collectively hold more than $58 billion in unclaimed cash benefits. That's roughly $186 for every single U.S. resident. These unclaimed items come from a variety of sources, including abandoned bank accounts and stock holdings, unclaimed life insurance payouts, and forgotten pension benefits. More than $300 million in pension benefits is currently owed to some 38,000 people who never claimed it. The unclaimed benefits currently range from $0.12 cents to a whopping $704,621 with an average benefit of $9,100 that has just simply not been claimed. Some benefits may go unclaimed because an employee was unaware that he or she had accrued retirement benefits at a previous employer. So somewhere today, many, many people rightfully possess large amounts of money and they've never claimed it. It's rightfully theirs and they've never taken hold of it to use it, to enjoy it. In fact, Someone is out there today, and maybe they don't even realize, they are $700,000 more wealthy than they should be. It's theirs. It's rightfully theirs. They just don't claim it. You know, you are valuable to God. You matter so much to the Lord. You're more valuable than you can even comprehend. And, and you have something from God, something that is remarkable, something that is valuable. It is yours if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have something that is of immeasurable value. From God Almighty, you have forgiveness. You have 100% of your sins forgiven. Verse 13 again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That is good news. God has forgiven you. And Satan knows it. The enemy knows it. And that deceiver's goal is to mislead you to believe that you do not have it. So that you do not claim it. So that you do not live it. It belongs to you. Not because of anything you have done. Jesus accomplished your forgiveness on the cross. And and you may get that in your head. You, you may understand the theological connotation of that in your brain, but do you live that victory, that truth, that through Jesus you are forgiven? Do you lay down your head at night? Do you put your head on that pillow? And do you live out the truth and rest knowing because of Jesus all is well? With my soul. I remember back in the early 1990s in middle school, and I was a Kentucky football fan. And if you've ever been a Kentucky football fan, especially in the early 90s, you know that's a heavy burden to bear um, to, to watch the cats. And maybe I was naive in, in middle school, but I remember watching the Kentucky Wildcats take on the Florida Gators. And the Gators were a dominant team in this time period. And and I remember thinking, what if we win? And then we were down seven. And then we were down 14. And, And there was still some hope left, but then we were down 21. And then we were down 73. And we scored. So, so it was 73 to 7, and that was the conclusion of the game. 73 to 7. And where I come from in Corbin, Kentucky, there's a technical term from that. That is a whooping. We received a whooping that day, an undisputed victory, a spectacle of domination on the gridiron. Do you know what Jesus wants you to know today? Jesus has been 100% victorious over the kingdom of Satan, and you partake in that victory. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In this time period, when a king or ruler achieved victory on the battlefield, they would take some of the soldiers they had defeated and they would parade them around. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. The Bible takes that military language and it says, Jesus did something like that 
with the kingdom of Satan. He defeated the enemy. He defeated the demons on the cross. And he paraded them around, triumphing over them and putting them on spectacle for all to see his victory. And the Bible uses this celebratory language of victory to help us understand we are 100% forgiven for following the prince and power of the air. We have been disconnected from Satan, and we have been connected to Jesus. And Jesus has an undisputed victory over the enemy, and he offers us a forgiveness that is complete. Yet still, if we were honest, maybe we struggle with this, this recognition, this understanding that truly we are forgiven before God. Why is that? Why is it that sometimes we struggle to internalize this truth that we are forgiven? I think it is partly because we sometimes fail to make this application, and it's the next application of our text. To read this text and live it out, this application we must make is this. Refuse to let anything define your relationship with God other than Jesus and his word. Look with me again in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without any reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Something was happening at the church of Colossae. False teaching had arisen in this fellowship. We are not told exactly who started the false teaching or exactly what it was, but we see clues of this false teaching. First, we see that it was a rule-based false teaching. Instead of it being about Jesus, it was a false teaching that involves stuff that you have to do, stuff that's about you, not about Christ. Look with me at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. So the main problem with this false teaching is at its root, it has this foundation. This false teaching asserts Jesus is not enough. The false teaching claims Jesus is not enough. You see, religious ritual. That is what they felt God desired. And religious ritual is what made one holy. The teachings of Jesus were there, but according to the false teachers, the teachings of Jesus were not enough. You need to do something. You need to add something to Christ's work. And Jesus consistently rebuked such man-centered, one-upmanship, religious ritual that was occurring in his day and still occurs in ours. In fact, we see this confrontation in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, we read this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here are so-called religious people. And they thought that they had to follow the Sabbath to a T, not work at all, even if it meant you hurt someone else. And God's law never intended that, but human interpretation did. So if anyone claims one day is more holy than another, or whatever ritual or accolade or checklist they're trying to make to point to their performance, instead of pointing to the Lord, that is where they are misled where you must also keep the Sabbath or a religious festival. you got to make your checklist and show how great you are. That inward longing of something I need to do instead of resting in everything that Christ did, that is the misleading, that is the false teaching that we see here in Colossae. I mean, we may have a hard time relating to that of understanding what they were dealing with with holidays. So, so what if it was something like this? What if you met a Christian who said, yeah, I don't celebrate Christmas? You're kind of taken aback. You don't celebrate Christmas? But does the Bible ever say that we have to celebrate Christmas? If I insist that you have to celebrate Christmas, is that what it says in the Word of God, or am I just adding to it? And, and that's the problem of the false teachers. They want to take what Jesus has, and they want to hang their priorities on it. So the false teaching continually stresses Christ is not enough. You need to do something. You need to follow a holiday. You need to practice asceticism, just extreme denial to yourself. You need rule-keeping, and you need to show how good you are at keeping the rules. Jesus is good, but he's not enough, the false teachers imply. You need radically to discipline your body. There are certain foods you must not eat. There are certain drinks you must avoid. And if you can have the willpower to do that, then you will reach up to this super spiritual level. You will be able to look at the scoreboard of, look what I can do, and then you will be holy. The false teachers assert. And instead of being intrigued with an encounter with Christ, they want something else. What do the false teachers want? Verse 18 again. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. And going on in detail about visions. Now this may seem strange. If you can know the God-man, the star of the show, the most significant person in all of existence, if you can know Jesus, why would you be intrigued and fascinated with encounters with angels? If you can know the king, why are you so obsessed with his messengers? You see, the false teachers claim Jesus was not enough. No, you need to encounter other beings, angels. You need them too. Friend, listen, anytime you place a man or an angelic being between you and Jesus, you're just saying Jesus is not enough. If, if you think you need another human to get to Christ, then Jesus is not enough. 
if you are fascinated by books of people who claim to have had visions, of people who've claimed to have trips to heaven, but you haven't opened your Bible in quite some time, friends, is Jesus enough in your life? There are false religions today that claim that angelic beings appeared and, and they've brought new teaching and that they're more spiritual because of these angelic encounters. But what does the Word of God say? Paul addressed this in Galatians 1. In Galatians 1 verse 8, Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So the mantra of the false teachers is plain. you got to add things to Jesus. you got to add following holidays and ascetics and food denial. You have to look to religious fascination, angels, books by people claiming to go to heaven, anything other than Jesus because Jesus is not enough for them. And they bank their authority on visions. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions. If you were to examine Christ's life and his ministry, and his strategy for combating the enemy, you would see it's the Word of God that is often implemented. In Matthew 4, verse 3, when we see Jesus tempted by Satan, we see this. In Matthew 4, verse 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in his high priestly prayer, when he sought the concern of the church and the foundation by which they would stand, in John 17, beginning in verse 17, Jesus said this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. But the false teachers were saying, God's word is not enough. We need something else. We need visions. Church, we need radical, radical caution to anyone. I don't care if they're on TV. I don't care if they have a massive following. We need radical caution to anyone who claims to have received a vision from God. Visions were never meant to be our primary guides. Jesus and his word was meant to be our primary guide. Especially if those visions add something to God's scripture. Because there is a victory that God wants us to take hold of. There is a peace and serenity that God wants us to have in our life. But that victory will only come when we realize Jesus is enough. And everything that God is for us in Christ is enough. And we don't need anything else because Jesus has secured the victory. That's why we must make this application in this text today. Let the forgiveness of Jesus truly change you from the inside out. Look with me again at verse 19. 
and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The false teachers claimed Jesus plus something else will make you holy. But their plans were not exclusively connected to the only source that can bring change. Their plans did not exclusively depend on the only way that we can walk with the Lord, Jesus Christ. So they were left with a rules-based religion, bragging about visions, bragging about their religious scoreboard and checklist instead of resting in what Christ has accomplished for us. You know, as a pastor, I've done many weddings, and I, I always let the bride and groom choose the vows, and some want to go traditional and some write their vows. But, but what if I did a wedding and these were the vows that the bride and groom said to one another? What if the groom said, I promise to go through the motions with you. I'll buy you roses if I have to. I'll be faithful to you. I'll make a checklist of how I'm supposed to behave. I'll follow it if I have to, I guess. Till death do us part, I suppose. That is what the false teachers are saying. Just do this. Just follow this checklist. Just do these rules. Even if your heart is not in it, and you'll still be okay. And their commitment is not toward a human marriage. The commitment is supposed to be toward a relationship with God. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want you to just sit and pull out your religious checklist of things you're supposed to do. He wants to know you. He made you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to love you, and he wants you to love him and to experience the joy that isn't rested on the garbage of this world, but on the treasure that is only Christ. But now, here is the ironic thing. Yes, unequivocally, God does demand ethical change to our lives. And if we've come to know the good news of Jesus, we should want this change to come about. The problem is not that the false teachers get, we need to change. Their problem is they think following their rules brings the change that God wants. But what does it say in verse 23? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We've come to know Jesus, and over time, through steps, and his power, not ours, we should look more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul pulls no punches on this topic. In Galatians 5, verse 19, he says it boldly. He says it like this. In Galatians 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no doubt part of the good news of Jesus is he can bring a change to our lives, and we should welcome it, and in his power we should pursue it. But what truly spurs on authentic change? Do so-called visions that add more detail about God's realm than the actual Bible? No. Does a rule-based religion keep these holy days? Don't eat this. Make sure you do that. Is that what brings change? No. Then what can truly change our lives to experience the joy of walking, knowing we're forgiven, of walking with Christ? Verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is to God, exclusively connected to Jesus, only depending on Christ, resting in everything that he says you are because of everything he did, only Jesus who guides us primarily through his word, not false visions from those who are not apostles, not religion based on rules. The Jesus who guides us by God's word, if you know him, he will change your heart. He will change your life. He will give you a rest that is only found in his forgiveness. And I pray this morning that you know him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the forgiveness that is only found in Jesus. We confess, we bring no strength, we bring no ability. We bring no way to achieve the forgiveness we need to be reconciled to you. But we proclaim that though we don't deserve it, and though it is solely based on grace, and though it is given to us as a gift, that in Jesus we have a forgiveness that we could not have accomplished. And Jesus, we worship you for that, and we thank you for that, and we praise your name for that. And, and let that seep in that we are forgiven. And let that truth be the platform with which we go into this world to tell everyone else they can be forgiven too. Though they don't deserve it, we didn't either. Though they can't accomplish it, neither could we. But you've done it all. And may that truth change us. May we die to who we used to be. And every day, may we live more to who you want us to be. And may you receive all the glory for it. Jesus, it is only in your name that we pray. Amen.
Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who could secure our forgiveness.